morning, Africa, and welcome to Daybreak Africa from the Voice of America. I'm Jackson Bungani in Washington. Today is Wednesday, June the 29th, and here are some of the stories we're covering for you this morning. In Ethiopia, record-breaking drought in the country has caused child malnutrition rates to soar in the northern Afar region. When we came here, he wasn't eating food or drinking water. We were afraid he would die. And pro-democracy groups in Iswatini, including political parties, civil society and student groups, say that they will be commemorating the June 29, 2021 protest to remember those killed and wounded. We shall be marching to the Prime Minister's office to delete a petition with regards to the massacre, whereby we are expecting the government to give us a, a report, a clear report on what happened, or rather to set a commission of inquiry so that we can know exactly what happened. In Uganda, leaders of the National Teachers Union, UNATU, will meet with the country's vice president today, Wednesday, to make their case for a pay increase for arts and humanities teachers days after calling for a strike. We'll have those stories and more coming up right here on Daybreak Africa. Stay tuned. And for our top story, Ethiopia's ruling Prosperity Party is calling on the African Union to oversee a peaceful resolution to the conflict in the country's northern Tigray province. Ethiopia's Justice Minister Gideon Timotewos told state media that African Union should facilitate peace talks between the government and the TPLF. Prime Minister Abiy Ahmed said two weeks ago that the federal government had formed a committee to study how they will negotiate with the Tigrayan forces. His government named a team of seven negotiators for possible peace talks led by Deputy Prime Minister Demeke Mekonen. Tigray's leaders have not commented on the announcement. According to the Associated Press, Tigray's top official, Debrezion Gebremaiko, has written a letter to the international community saying that his side is open to peace talks. However, he warned that a willingness to join talks should not be, quote, misunderstood as a readiness to abandon our principles, end quote. And still in Ethiopia, record-breaking drought in the country has caused child malnutrition rates to soar in the northern Afar region, where the only referral hospital says that babies are dying within hours of arrival. Ethiopia's war with Tigrayan forces has left less than 10% of the region's clinics functioning and hospitals struggling to cope. Halima Atumani reports from Semera in Ethiopia. Doctors at the only referral hospital in Ethiopia's Afar region say they have admitted 369 severely malnourished children in just the past three months. With only two pediatricians serving an area of more than one million people, Dupti General Hospital is overwhelmed with weak children and desperate mothers. Aina Kadri's one-year-old son has been on therapeutic feeding for two weeks. She says, when we came here, he wasn't eating food or drinking water. We were afraid he would die. The worst drought in the Horn of Africa in four decades has left millions of Ethiopians facing hunger and malnutrition. 
the UN says Afar's rate of admitted malnourished children jumped by 30% in March and then another 28% in April. The acting head of Dufti General Hospital, Dr. Muhammad Yusuf, says they've gone from admitting five children per month to five per day. They come after the patient deteriorated. So most of the patients die in our setup uh, after, after the arrival within two to three hours because they're already complicated. Since malnutrition is not the only pro, uh, the problem, it's accompanied with other complications like pneumonia, anemia, diarrhea. Ethiopian authorities said the war with the Tigran forces left Afar's clinics looted, destroyed, and less than 10% functioning. That's forced even more people to seek care at hospitals like Duftis, where patients spill into the hallways and porches, many of them children. Amina Adam Ibrahim has been here for over two weeks with her sick baby. She says he's coughing, he has a high fever, and he cannot eat food. She says we do not know what's wrong with him. Michelle Saad is head of the UN's humanitarian office in Ethiopia. He says there is a struggle to meet health care needs. There is a need to like uh, either rehabilitate other health centers somewhere else within Afar or to create new ones, even if momentary. But so this is also something that we're trying to work on. I can tell you, unfortunately, it's not as fast as we would like to, but it's definitely uh, on the radar and, and we are following up on this. Meanwhile, Dr. Yusuf says some staff have given up and abandoned the hospital, making it even harder for remaining health workers to cope. Halimath Mani for VA News, Samara, Ethiopia. The UN Children's Fund says that more than 266,000 violations were committed against children in armed conflict between 2005 and 2020. Lisa Schlein reports for VOA from Geneva. An analysis of more than 30 conflicts across Africa, Asia, the Middle East, and Latin America finds children continue to bear the brunt of war and are forced to endure what it calls unspeakable horrors. Authors of a report on the subject say the figure in the report represents just a fraction of the violations believed to have occurred and does not reflect the magnitude of the crimes committed against children caught in conflict. Tasha Gill is UNICEF's senior advisor, child protection in emergencies. She says children are victims of a staggering average of 71 verified grave violations every day. She says the report documents the killing and maiming of more than 104,000 children in conflict. Between 2016 and 2020, 82% of all verified child casualties occurred in only five situations. Afghanistan, Israel and the state of Palestine, Syria, Yemen, and Somalia. It is also important to note that many children experience more than one violation, increasing their vulnerability. She notes abduction often leads to other violations, such as recruitment and sexual violence. The report has verified at least 25,700 child abductions by parties to conflict and more than 93,000 children recruited as soldiers by all parties to conflict. Additionally, the report says children have been raped forcibly married and sexually exploited, with at least 14,200 children 
also having been subjected to other forms of sexual violence. Gill calls sexual violence against children the most underreported of all violations. Sexual violence does occur against children. It is used as a tactic of war. It is one of the lowest numbers because of the access issues, but also the stigma and fear attached to reporting in context across the board. Children are often used um, for many different reasons, which can be considered deliberate targeting. Our request is that all parties immediately cease and desist from using children in armed conflict. She notes children are recruited as soldiers, and many also are used by the warring parties as porters, sexual slaves, and messengers. She says the violations must stop. UNICEF is calling on parties to conflict and states to abide by their obligations under international humanitarian and human rights law and implement concrete measures to protect children. Agency officials say they have met with success in preventing some violations against children and putting a stop to others by engaging with those responsible for the violations. For example, over the past two decades, they say at least 170,000 children have been released from armed forces and armed groups. Lisa Schlein for VOA News, Geneva. Debrick Africa continues. Pro-democracy groups in Iswatini, including political parties, civil society and student groups, say they will be commemorating the June 29, 2021 protest today, Wednesday, to remember those killed and wounded. The protesters were demanding democratic reforms in Iswatini, Africa's only absolute monarchy, and the release of two jailed members of parliament. The government blamed foreigners for hijacking the protests and turning them into violence. Ahead of today's commemoration, the president of the Swaziland National Union of Students has called for the closure of all schools until July the 5th to, according to her, give teachers more time to rest. Mbongwa Dlamini is president of the Swaziland National Association of Teachers. He says the government is probably closing schools because it is uncertain about what might happen on Wednesday. Dlamini tells VOS James Bati the pro-democracy groups will present a petition to the government calling for the establishment of a commission of inquiry into the killings that took place on June 29, 2021. We shall be marching to the Prime Minister's office to deliver a petition with regards to the massacre, whereby we are expecting the government to give us a, a report, a clear report on what happened, or rather to set a commission of inquiry so that we can know exactly what happened and whosoever uh, is responsible we can be taken under book. As you know, the Education Minister, Lady Mabuza, has announced the closure of schools until the 5th of July. What do you make of that? It is very much suspicious because uh, there are a number of problems that teachers are faced with. Teachers have been calling the Ministry of Education and the Ministry of Education has been turning a deaf ear. And this time, we don't know how can the ministry... It is unusual for the ministry to behave this promptly when they are made to be aware of any problem affecting teachers. But anyway, it is obvious to us that the reason why they have to close schools is because they're not certain about what is going to happen on Wednesday. You said that in commemoration of uh, June 29th, you are going to deliver a statement to Parliament. And what what will be the purpose of the statement? Basically, what we want is a clear 
explanation or a report on the side of government on who actually killed these soldiers because they bring different explanations. Now, because at uh, times they are saying there were people from other countries, mercenaries, they're saying they are mercenaries who came to the country and killed those people. Now, at times, another minister bring another version um, different from the other, which definitely means that we have to demand a commission of inquiry, which is going to investigate the cause of that massacre and maybe those who are behind it. So nothing much has happened then in terms of uh, finding a solution to this uh, crisis? In fact, uh, it is the denial by the government that is delaying everything because people were clear what they want. They want democracy. They want to have uh, their own government. And then now the only solution is to attend to the demands by these people because the only thing that they are demanding it is democracy. The students and the teachers got involved in this protest demanding the release of some jail members of parliament. Whatever happened to their case? In fact, what is shocking about this case of the MPs, you know that they don't even want the, the supporters of the MPs to attend the trial, whenever there is trial. When people try to attend the trial, they end up being beaten up, uh, brutalized by cops. Some get shot just for attending that case. Thank you so much. It's a pleasure to speak with you. Yeah, it's my pleasure too. That was Mbongwa Dlamini, president of the Swaziland National Association of Teachers. He was speaking to VOA's James Barty. You're listening to Break Africa. We'll meet with Vice President the Wednesday to make a case for pay increase for arts and Chinese teachers for what they say were discriminatory salary increments on benefited sciences in the country. From Kala to Jekere, tells that the industrial action hold has a major proposal to increase arts teachers by only 100 percent finding the salary rates for arts and primary teachers. Mr. Bassett, the salary increase still continue with the strike. Characterized government response so far to your demands. What has been their counter offer? You see, we are talking about the, the government which has failed to meet its obligation because in 2018 we sat down with the government and agreed on the pay schedule and signed a collective bargaining agreement covering the years. 
we only demand that government fulfills its obligation as stated in the collective bargaining agreement. That was Mr. Philbert Baguma, the General Secretary of the Uganda National Teachers Union, UNATU, arrest him in Kampala. The recent Kimberley process meeting held in Botswana this month exposed cracks within the global diamond trade body that is entrusted with eliminating conflict diamonds from the global supply chain. Russia's invasion of the Ukraine is acting as a catalyst for calls to reform the trade initiative. From Habarone, Botswana, reporter Kodisi Dube has details. The intersessional meeting held last week in the resort town of Kasani saw amplified calls for reforms. The Kimberley process established in 2003 aims to certify only diamonds that come from conflict-free zones and that do not fund rebels and human suffering. Critics say the initiative has failed to meet the challenges of a changing global environment. Apu Prima represents the Kimberley Process Civil Society Coalition. He says more needs to be done to keep the body relevant. We are calling for a serious assessment of the KP since 20 years of existence. We believe that good practice demands that before a review is before a, a new direction is given, before new decisions are taken, before existing documents are changed, there must be an evaluation of practices and policies and frameworks so that it informs the, the reform process. At the Botswana meeting, the coalition as well as the European Union and its allies unsuccessfully tried to push for the classification of gems mined in Russia as conflict diamonds. But due to a lack of consensus among participating countries, the issue was not on the agenda. Russia, which is the world's top diamond producer, found an ally in Belarus to block debate on the issue. Belgian-based Hans Mekate is part of the coalition and the researcher on natural resources and conflict mapping. He has little hopes of reform for the Kimberley process. Actually, we have heard this so many times before. And we come back from the intersessional meeting in, in Botswana with a sentiment or, or feelings that are even less promising uh, for the future or more desperate for the future because the trust among participants seems to be even lower now and the, the reluctance to participate in discussions on, on reform efforts is, is enormous. The elephant in the room has been the reluctance of the Kimberley process to broaden the definition of conflict diamonds and the requirement that any policy changes be based on reaching a consensus. That would mean that all 85 participating countries would have to agree for a motion to be on the agenda. The Kimberley process defines conflict diamonds as those mined to fund rebel activities and terrorism. The president of the World Diamond Council, Edward Asher, says it is time the Kimberley process responds to changing times. On Monday, in my formal address, I spoke about the urgent need for the KP to evolve so as to remain a relevant force in the world that has changed. As you know, the World Diamond Council has advocated for KP reform for many years. Despite criticism leveled against the diamond body, Botswana's Minister of Minerals, Lufokomwahi, says the Kimberley process is making progress. The significance of the Kimberley process cannot thus be overemphasized. This growth over the years having started with 36 representatives of governments, the European Commission and the World Diamond Council, 
to today's many participants, with more countries indicating desire to join, demonstrates that we are on the right path and therefore should be proud of our efforts. Unity within the Kimberley process will be further tested when the participants return for a plenary session scheduled for Haboroni in November. For VOA, this is Mkondisi Dube in Haboroni, Botswana. Rubber is the European import that poses the biggest threat to West and Central Africa's tropical forests. That's according to a new investigation from Global Witness. The European Union Environment Council said this week they will not include rubber as a commodity covered in their initial European Union deforestation law. Colin Robertson, a senior investigator at Global Witness, spoke to Ricky Shryok about the report and the recent EU decision. It appears that they're not going to include they're not going to include rubber in the in the, in the initial law. But there'll still be some ongoing negotiations on that between European member states and the European Parliament. There are many MEPs in the European Parliament who would like the bill to be the the laws to be to be strengthened. So um, negotiations will, will will carry on. Colin, can you give me a little bit of background about why these laws you feel need to be strengthened? Why rubber needs to be on the protected list, specifically when we talk about countries in West Africa? Well, it's very positive that, that these laws are being introduced in in Europe. But based on the research we've done, um, rubber, which is a commodity that currently won't be included in the in the law in the laws, is um, is one of the major drivers of deforestation in Africa, particularly in Central Africa but also to a lesser extent in, in, in West Africa as well. We've we mapped around uh, 520 square kilometers of deforestation linked with rubber plantations since 2000 in Western Central Africa. So it's a, it's a vast area of forest that's been um, cleared to make way for rubber, rubber plantations in the last two decades. So we think there's a very strong case for rubber to be included We've also seen how some of these plantations can put a lot of pressure on land availability for local communities, which can lead to land conflict. We can lead to conflict within communities and between different communities and, and companies. So there's also the the aspect of the the, the, the human cost of of the extension of these um, rubber plantations, which are producing for international markets including including Europe. Can you talk to me a little bit about the amount of deforestation that rubber is linked to a little a bit in detail specifically about the banks in the EU that are providing financing and how that's linked to rubber driven deforestation? We mapped some uh, as I said we mapped 520 square kilometers of deforestation um, in Africa linked to rubber plantations since since the year 2000 and um yeah the, these these rubber plantations are primarily controlled by international companies um many of these companies have strong links to to international banks including banks based in in the eu in france um the netherlands um, also in the uk which finance their operations and um we also found that around 30% of the rubber exports from from key African rubber producers are going to the EU. So this is um, this is a form of deforestation that is very much driven by European consumers and and European banks. That is Colin Robertson, a senior investigator at Global Witness.
He was speaking to VOA's Ricky Shryok. And that's it for this edition of Daybreak Africa. We thank you for spending this morning with us. For more African news and features, visit our website at voaafrica.com. Connect with us on all social media platforms. We are on Twitter, Instagram.